Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Midrats with Sal from Commander Salamander and Eagle One from Eagle Speak at Sea or Shore, your home for a discussion of national security issues and all things maritime. And welcome aboard, everybody. I am the aforementioned uh, Sal with my ever-genial co-host, Eagle One. Really appreciate y'all coming back again today for another live edition of Midrats. And a reminder to those that are joining us live, you can go ahead and scroll down to the bottom of the show page if you like. That is where you'll find the chat room with the usual suspects. As You can roll in there if you have some observations during the course of the show you would like to share with us. Or if there is a question you would like for us to direct to our guest, it doesn't look like we're heading that direction, uh, go ahead and throw it in the chat room. We would love to steal it and fold it in as the show moves forward. And if you're new to Midrats, or if you got to jump off halfway through the show and you want to see what you missed, you can always get the full archive over Blog Talk Radio, or you can take a shortcut and just subscribe to the free podcast over on iTunes. But enough of the show prep. Let's go ahead and get on with it. Uh, this summer, been a very busy summer, high to the fighting season in a variety of places. We continue to see the terrain shifting um, with Islamic fundamentalist terrorism, whatever you want to call it. Uh, we like to use a little term, the, the long war here, because uh, it's been with us for quite a long time. It's going to be there for a while. But the different fronts have uh, waxed. Not too many of them have waned. And we're seeing some changing characteristics. And we said this is a great time to bring on one of our favorite guests to discuss in detail for the full hour. And our guest today will be Bill Rojo. He is a senior fellow at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. He's also president of Public Multimedia Incorporated, a nonprofit news organization, and of course, the founder and editor of the Long War Journal, a new site devoted to covering the war on terror. He's embedded with both U.S. and Iraqi Army units six times from 2005 through 08, also with the Canadian Army in Afghanistan in 2006. He served with the U.S. Army and the New Jersey National Guard. Bill, welcome back to Midrats. Glad to have you. Thanks. It's a real pleasure. It just kind of kicked things off looking for a, a format today, kind of working inside out. The Obviously, one of the bold-faced items from July was the, uh, the attack on Chattanooga, which is almost another episode in the, the long march of these uh, sometimes externally radicalized, sometimes self-radicalized uh, American citizens holding a passport who decide to uh, take it upon themselves to open up their little micro front. Ha how has that threat 
developed? And, and do you see it's something that um, we, whether it's our civilian security apparatus, our intelligence apparatus, or the U.S. Milita military has really hoisted on board as part or one of the fronts that we have in the long war? Yeah, the, the attack in Chattanooga, this one, you know, we hear this term lone wolf being thrown around a lot whenever there's an attack. And, and I think that it often is used to describe individuals, Islamic terrorists who conduct attacks, who often are connected. Um, when you, to me, a true lone wolf, what that is, is someone who is radicalized in some way or another via the internet or, you know, some, but has not had any really, any true connections to jihadist groups. And what, more than a month now after the attack in Chattanooga, we really haven't been able to put our hands on how this individual was, was radicalized. Now, there may be some indications that his uncle in Jordan may have done it. He may have met someone, but we're still at that point where we don't know. And typically in the other attacks, you know, when you have Major Nadal's son at Fort Hood and others, you know, he was in contact with Al-Qaeda here in the Peninsula, and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So to me, those are not lone wolf type attacks. Those, are, those attacks are connected to certain jihadist groups. But this, indiv this individual appears to have been radicalized in a very quick fashion and very likely, but again, the possibility is still open that he may have actually met someone in the Middle East. And I think that that's a good possibility. And, and this is the true danger because you have, you have a message that's being promoted by Islamic terror, terrorist groups, whether it's Al-Qaeda, whether it's the Islamic State or all of these other uh, you, you know, fellow travel or jihadist groups that exist out there. This message is being put out there on the internet and through other media, and individuals who you would not expect it are are joining these groups or conducting attacks in these groups' name or just being radicalized by these groups. One of the things, uh, one of the the real problems I think that we have as a nation or that the West has in general is the inability or unwillingness to recognize that there is a very effective ideology that is driving global jihadists. And it is radicalizing a significant segment. And let's think of like, you know, the young wild-eyed kids that are, were in from the, you know, the 50s, 60s, and 70s who were gravitated toward communism. You would think, if you live in, in the West and you have all of this, why would you want to be a communist, and yet it was an ideology that that appealed to a certain segment of the population. And you have the same thing going on here. And we are doing absolutely nothing to combat that because we just say we want to go after terrorist groups and terrorist leaders and conduct drug strikes, kill people, or we'll conduct military operations. And those things need to be done. And by the way, we're not even doing that very very effectively, in my opinion. Uh, but we're doing absolutely nothing to com combat the ideology from it uh, spreading, from it uh, radicalizing individuals. And that is, that's a very real weakness in this war. And until we decide to, to combat that, until we give an alternative message that is effective, it, I think we're going to have 
ultimately over time more attacks like Chattanooga or Fort Wood or, or you know, attacks of that nature. And I, I think it's something that, uh, I mean, I don't mean this, that we should just get used to it. We should not get used to it, but we should expect those kind of attacks because we are doing, we are not effectively fighting this war either militarily or on the ideological level. The uh, attack in Chattanooga was, as uh, Sal indicated, by a by a, a legitimate U.S. citizen. Uh, but over the years, we've heard a lot of discussion about the danger of our borders being porous enough that groups uh, or individuals may try and infiltrate. Do you have any uh, read on how uh, concern we should be about that particular side of this uh, this sort of thing, or is that, uh, does that seem to have fallen by the wayside? I think border security should always be a concern. When you have, you know, thousands and hundreds of thousands of individuals who are undocumented crossing the border, when you don't know who is within your borders, um, and, I mean, if a terrorist group wants to exploit that, they will. I mean, look, but the fact is, they didn't even have to do that for the 9-11 attack. They took advantage of our lax policies, and they got through, you know, just lax work policies and visa policies and, and things of that nature. Not a single one was smuggled into the country illegally. They were able to do it uh, quite quite legally. And, and the, the fact is, is that, you know, we have individuals in this country who are being watched uh, who we know, but we're unable to move on them because of legal issues. And, and there's certainly, uh, it's not something that, you know, I don't, I don't take lightly ejecting people from the United States, but I think if you have clear terrorist ties, that we really have to consider that there's only so many individuals that we could watch. What about those who have traveled to Syria or those who traveled to Somalia or other Afghanistan or other countries where we think they've uh, waged jihad? We we have to you know we have to effectively deal with the ones we know of. Look at the the Boston bomb, for instance. The the Sarnoff brothers. We were by the way. This is one of the reasons why I am against the, the what I view to be illegal surveillance. When we have information that clearly links individuals to jihadist groups and do nothing about it, and that information is obtained openly. Why should if we can't do the right thing with that information? Why should we gather information illegally uh, and on uh, and in and, and, and mass on on American citizens when we can't even do the right thing on information? The the Sarnoff brothers, one of the brothers, look at his, they looked at his Facebook page and they saw that he had he was linking to videos from Doku Umarov, who's the head of the Islamic Caucus at the time. He's no longer dead. That should have been a red flag. And instead of kicking him out of the country, they gave him citizenship. And so these, you know, and again, that's part of that problem. That's a, that is a clear ideological indicator that you have a jihadist if you're linking to to someone like Doku Umarov. And yet, the F, you know, the FBI said, mm, that's not a problem. The war by Russian intelligence, not a problem. And, and in a sense, we get what we pay for when we refuse to recognize it's in front of our face. Now, would you see that hesitancy by the FBI? Is that a institutional uh, incompetence, or is this a reaction 
to a political direction and guidance that there are, are certain areas or methods that are no-go. And if it is the latter, um, is that something that could possibly change or is this a bipartisan consensus that there are some some clues that we just will not investigate? It is very difficult to say. I honestly wish I knew the answer to that. I wish I could answer this effectively. I think in the in this individual case of the Sarnoff brothers, and uh, uh, I think this is probably a case of bias against Russian intelligence. Um, there is a certainly a bias within the U.S. government and in in policy circles that the Chechen jihadists really aren't global jihadists. But they're merely rebels who are fighting the Russian government. It is something that persists. I've done de debates in D.C. where people have told me this, and and I could point to individual, you know, individual after individual from these jihadist groups who are clearly global global jihadists. You today you could see they're fighting in Syria and Iraq and in Afghanistan and Pakistan, and yet people still refuse to accept this. So I think it all depends on the situation. But in the case of with the with people in link to the Islamic Caucus Emirates, it's probably an institutional bias. Uh, but again, I don't I don't like to make sweeping statements or pretend I understand. The, uh, the true motivations as to why something happened because I just haven't seen anything in the decision-making fraud. Like, I'm, I'm not privy to it, but I, I do believe in the case, of, uh, it's just my guess, that in the case of the Boston bombings, that was an institutional type situation. You had a red flag after red flag that they should not have been given citizenship, and yet they were. And the answer to that has to be is they just refused to believe it was in front of them because they could, they refused to believe that uh, individuals who were fighting the Russian government or could possibly be global jihadists. When um, when we when you were talking earlier about the need to kind of counter the propaganda put out by ISIS and and uh, some of the other radical groups, uh, how do you, what would you envision? Uh, how would you envision doing that? I mean, we, you know, are we are we soliciting? Would we solicit uh, uh, help from the from the the Muslim community that is not radicalized and and helping us identify people? Or, or is there? I mean, I I don't I don't have a real good feel for how much participation we're getting from that group in terms of, uh, you know, this this guy seems to have suddenly gone whack, and you might want to keep an eye on him. Is there? Are you aware of anything like that? Yeah. It this is a great question, and I'm not sure I have the answer to this. You know, this is one of those ones where, hey, I can identify the problem, but I'm not really sure what the solution is. But I think there's a lot of smart individuals out there that can figure that one out. The reason I think the, the government doesn't want to get involved is because we're dealing with religion, and religion is icky, and that causes all kinds of politically correct issues. But, I mean, some of the things you would have to do is you'd have to have a message. I mean, yes, it would absolutely require engaging uh, elements of, of the Muslim society that truly are moderate. I'm not talking moderate like you wanted to say, oh, the moderate opposition in Syria, and that means that they're just not the, 
they're not the ones that are openly calling for jihad, but they're still part of the Muslim Brotherhood. Therefore, we can, you know, we can work with them because they just believe in in establishing Sharia via a political system as opposed to fight. I mean, that's not that's not moderate. And there are individuals out there. Uh, I read a good story about someone from one of the uh, from a, one of the large mosques in Boston. He was a member of the board. And he was pushed out by known radicals. And, uh, you know, those guys exist, and I think they're ignored um, time and time again. It, it requires an effort to identify them and reach out to them, and, and they need to be pushing their message if they need support. But it's extremely difficult to do that. And, uh, again, I don't know how I would do it, but it's it's the only – the way you defeat an ideology is by – by opposing its ideas, and, and we're not doing that. There is no effort. And as a matter of fact, we're doing the exact opposite. We're pretending, we're not saying, you're part of, you know, you're distorting Islam by doing what you're doing. We say, oh, you're just some extreme, radical extremist who's a fringe guy. How does, you know, fringe groups control entire countries or, or areas within countries? And you know, I'm not just talking about the Islamic State. Al-Qaeda controls territory in Syria. And it controls territory in Somalia and in parts of Yemen and Afghanistan, Pakistan. You know, so you can't. The reason that jihadist groups control such so much territory is because it appeals to a significant percentage of the population. What percentages? Is it five percent? Ten? Is it twenty? I don't know, but it's enough that they're able to take control of territory, govern and replenish its ranks who are dying or being injured in fighting. And until we we attack that message, not just we, but with the those within Islam who are opposed to it, until that happens, uh, I think Chinese groups are going to continue to gain territory uh, across the world. And I, um, you know, I, I know a lot of people don't believe that, uh, I think there's a bias out there, well, it's just all Muslims who are, uh, support al-Qaeda or support the Al- Islamic State or they're all radicals or they're all whatever. I don't believe that to be the case and I, I have to take my experiences with embedding with Iraqi troops uh, from between over the span of four years that, uh, you know, look, at with some units that I was with, there's just so few advisors that if they wanted us all dead, uh, the mass Americans were there, we would have just been dead and instead what they were doing was actually fighting Al-Qaeda in Iraq, which is the predecessor to the Islamic State. And they were doing it in under very difficult circumstances. And the individuals like that are still out there, and they're still fighting, and they're just not receiving the proper support. And they're, uh, they're being marginalized, or um, and they just don't have the resources to do what's needed. And, uh, I, you know, look, I don't see anything happening with this administration. And... I don't know if the right thing is going to happen with the next administration, but until we decide to take this fight on from all aspects, militarily, ideolo- and the ideology, we're going to, you know, it's, I think it's just a matter of time before we suffer more attacks like we have, you know, in Chattanooga or Boston. I don't think a 9-11 type attack is on the horizon, but I can envision other types of attacks that, may have far fewer casualties, but may have far uh, greater impact. And I prefer not to describe them on air because I don't like to give ideas. 
to individuals as terrorist groups who they might, you know, then that way um, it's not my job to think for them. Let's put it that way. Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. I uh, I killed a post I was going to write last week when I realized I was uh, coming up with courses of action for them, and I probably shouldn't do that, uh, though I'm sure they have people smarter than me working on the same challenges. I wanted to, yeah, to it, drift. It, it's really oh, go ahead. tough because you, you want to say, look, this is what we can experience. This is what is on the horizon for us, and I'm seeing this, and I'm seeing that, but they just took this, this, and this, and piece it together. The impact would be fantastic, and you want to warn people about this, but you also don't want to tell to give them an easy out. So it's a real, it's a real challenge, you know, to to uh, try and understand and, and communicate, you know, the, the nature of the threat. And um, but yeah, let, let them figure it out. That it's just too dangerous. They, they I'm going to tell you though, they have all the pieces of the puzzle that they need, and just a yep. little bit of extra effort. And they could, I think they could do an attack that would um, require a lot fewer resources, fewer individuals than the 9-11 attack, but it would cause people to not send their kids to school and not, uh, uh, you know, not want to go to work and not want to go grocery shopping and not want to, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, it, it would not, it would not take much. Resources. Yep. I wanted to, to drift across the pond a little bit. Um, to talk about what should have been, um, maybe, maybe we're just not hiring the right red cells to, to war game these things for them, but should have been an obvious second or third order effect of the operations in Libya and other places in North Africa, and also what we've seen in the, the Middle East and the arc from the, the coast of Syria all the way down to, to Baghdad. And we saw another event last week where you had a few thousand people storming the gates in Calais to get in the tunnel to get to the UK to get the nice welfare benefits. But the refugee crisis that is only going to get worse as the Islamic State and their affiliates and franchises take more territory, they've only got one place to conveniently go, and that's to Western Europe. And I was thinking about um, at the congressional hearing uh, I think it was in early July, maybe late June, where uh, the FBI stated that we we already hear speaking of the U.S. You know, we have too many too many people with radical connections that have come here as refugees that we can't track them. We're tapped out. We're overwhelmed. There are too many already. Um, our European friends, do they really have an appreciation for? They're already in a pickle to begin with that the, the, the EU migrant laws that were developed uh, decades ago don't seem to be working very well for them right now. Uh, do you believe that they're going to see an, an increase in this migrant crisis? And uh, you know, what are the things that you're looking for to see whether there might be a tipping point or when they st- or maybe they've reached already reached that tipping point either to react or that the threat level is such that uh, the, the, the news just isn't going to stop on it? Look, I, I think that the, they, the Europeans, understand the problem, but I think they're absolutely unwilling to do it, or do anything about it uh, for you know, reasons of political correctness. It, it, it would be an admission to them that their entire stance on immigration and borders 
and how to deal with, you know, individuals from, you know, countries that are falling apart. And there just happen to be more and more of those types of countries these days that are, you know, bordering Europe or only, you know, right across the sea from them. So I think individuals and members of government understand the nature of the threat, but I don't think anything is going to be done about it uh, because, you know, I think that Europeans are, 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 you know, as much as we think we may be victims of political correctness, the Europeans are, you know, by leaps and bounds uh, above us. I think, you know, I mean, look, you would think, and, you know, here's part of the problem. Some of the most terrorist attacks that were conducted in Europe are done from the migrant population, but done from population that's been radicalized within its own borders, um, from its own citizens. You know, the Charlie Hebdo attack, or the you know Seven Eleven attacks in, in Britain, or the attacks in Spain, the Three Eleven attacks in Spain. You know, on and on and on. These these plots they tend to be individuals who were born and raised within within Europe, and you know so. You know, it, it's it's kind of analogous to here. You know, we have all these problems with the borders, but yet a lot of the threat comes from our own from our own citizens or from those who are you know who are born here. And the Europeans have the same problem, so they're. I, it's just it's amazing to me. You know, so that isn't to say, right? Well, the attacks are happening from you know naturalized citizens or or you know homegrown citizens. I mean, hunger. I mean, there's those who are born in in country that has nothing to do with the borders. We shouldn't shut them down. Uh, I think that's a, a you know, no. You have to deal with that problem because you have no idea what's going on. You have no idea what's coming through. And I think I personally have to believe that jihadist groups, particularly in Europe, it's a lot easier that they're exploiting these open borders in order to push through. Maybe not those who are conducting attacks. But a lot of the support network that comes through, and we know that that people come through and they take advantage of the welfare programs in Europe and whatnot to sit around and and uh, uh, you know and, and plan attacks like guys like Omar Bakri, who his entire family was collecting welfare for well over a decade within the United Kingdom. It was known exactly who he was, and he wasn't just your your regular jihadist thug or your, you know, your, your muscle. This was a, you know, a key ideologue and a guy who was, you know, plotting attacks and, and fundraising and recruiting and all these things. And yet he was untouched. And, and even while he was under house arrest and receiving welfare benefits, it's extremely attractive, attractive for jihadist groups to, Get individuals in country, and I, I, I recall too. And I mean, I hope I'm not speaking out of turn here, but I think they even have written documents or manuals to explain to others how to take advantage of the welfare state in, in Western Europe in order to um, have them basically, you know, finance your, your own personal job. Well, I think the uh, Sarnoff brothers in Boston were. That family was also uh, heavily involved in our welfare system, Absolutely. Uh, and <laughs> so and and seemed to be upset by the fact that maybe they got cut off. Um, I'm going to ask this question early in the show because I think we've always asked it kind of toward the end. But as you look out today, I mean, I, I, I look at the Long War Journal and we see that uh, the Taliban now seems to be affiliated with Al Qaeda again. 
or maybe for the first time, I'm not quite sure. But as you're as you're looking out there, Bill, uh, as you know, this is I think we had you on about six months ago. This six months, what what uh, what do you see that just scares the heck out of you right now? Well, yeah, and, and as far as the the, the Taliban being affiliated, we're just going to tackle that real quick. They always have been. I mean, they sheltered Al Qaeda. What uh, what just happened here? What we know now is uh, one of the individuals who's one of the deputies. You know, Taliban have always been very coy about how their relationship with Al Qaeda. But when Siraj Khani, he is the operational commander of what's known as the Khani Network. I mean, he's in bed with the, with Al Qaeda. He sits on their executive store, whatnot. So you know, th- those ties just can't be obscured anymore as much as people want to. Um, to, but your question was, if I recall correctly, what is the, what, what concerns me the most uh, over the over the short term? Is, is that correct? Oh yeah, that's it. Yeah. Okay. That's a good question. Um, you know, I, I always believe that that the potential for a major attack on, on American soil is there, but I think what what really well, it's a good question. There's so there's so much happening in so many theaters. Think about that. You know, when 9-11 first happened, okay, this is what just concerns me greatly. It's, it's just a rapid expansion of, of jihadist groups. And let me explain what has happened. Prior to 9-11, or at, right at 9-11, uh, you know, Al-Qaeda had one key base of operations that was in Afghanistan. That's where it trained its fighters and, you know, fought as an insurgency alongside the Taliban. And then it had, you know, it, it had a it's sort of a terrorist network, Yemen and Saudi Arabia and whatnot. But it wasn't fighting as, you know, insurgency movements. But fighting alongside in Chechnya might be the only the exception, but it just wasn't massive there. So, you know, that was, you know, by and large, it's a base of operation. And it had presence in places like Egypt and you know, North Africa, Stan, and, you know, but, but again, it was just, it was sort of a, 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 at a cellular level, you know, today you have Islamist insurgencies in, and I'm just going to briefly go down a list here, you know, in Iraq, in Syria, in Afghanistan, Pakistan, Yemen, in Egypt, in the Sinai, in Libya, in Mali, in Somalia, in, you know, uh, I feel like I'm missing places, you know, they're in Algeria, you know, on and on. We can just keep going listing countries. Each Nigeria. Each, Nigeria, yes. And, and it's not just Al-Qaeda now. Now they have the offshoot, the Islamic State, which is just merely an offshoot of Al-Qaeda. It's the, it's the split between, you know, it's an ideological or a leadership split. Look, the Islamic State is, and Al-Qaeda, they share the same goal. It's to establish a global caliphate via force of arms. They just differ a little bit in their strategy and tactics, which Al-Qaeda says, hey, we should be doing this with others, um, you know, whether they're as good at being purist, jihadist, or Islamist, and we are not, we should work with them. And Oh, and then we'll, we'll kind of subsume them under, um, in our, uh, into our group, whereas the Islamic State says, we are the ones you swear to us and us alone. So they're the real. They're if this it's even possible. They're they're basically the the radicals of Al Qaeda, right? So, but what disturbs me in all of those places, they have established training camps, 
and their recruiting is is is, is phenomenal. It's it, and they're they're putting them through the camps. What Al Qaeda has always done is they've taken from a select small group of the uh, of the fighters that go through their camps. They look at individuals and they say, "Hey, you may be qualified to conduct attacks against the West based on their passport or the whatever skill set they may have." It's no different with the Islamic State. They're doing the same thing again because it's the same groups. And so now you have a far wider base to recruit, to train, and then you have individuals from countries who would never even consider a threat. You know, individuals for, you know not the countries are a threat, but that the you know. Like, do we really think that someone from the Ivory Coast can be a jihadist? Fourteen years ago, it wouldn't even come to mind. Today, there's jihadists from Benin and the Ivory Coast or, you know, countries where we would just never even expect. So, you know, that passport screening, you know, let's face it, we should scrutinize the Yemenis and Somalis and Egyptians for passports. It makes sense to do that. Or it made sense to do that. But does it today, given the that the fact that you've had Jamaican jihadists um, who issued statements. So, you know, that's what really worries me. It's not like, it's not a very, I'm not describing a specific threat here, but this expansion of the jihad, the expansion of the recruiting and the, you know, and it's become such a varied, uh, you know, from just a wide range of countries that I just don't think we could, it's impossible to manage that type of threat to to sort and sift through the individuals coming into our borders and say, oh, well, you know, hey, we really should be looking out after the Yemenis. But now that we have to say, we really should be scrutinizing Nigerians or those from Chad, you know, or that that's what really, really worries me. Um, uh, so, I know, again, I know that's not a specific threat, but it's it's just – it, it just speaks to how how far these jihadist groups have expanded in such a short amount of time, and for you know, and then what you have is you have an administration that is actively stating, well, we're winning, and Al Qaeda is a shell of itself, and you know, we're on the we're succeeding in in degrading and defeating the Islamic State. But none of those things are happening because jihad the jihadist. Uh, sphere of influence has grown remarkably over the last even five years. Yeah, you, that, that brings to mind a, a video that was uh, posted by the Islamic State recently, where in the border between Syria and Iraq, they had a truckload of, uh, of fighters, and it and in some some deep twisted version of uh, another universe, it almost was like the Mickey Mouse Club roll call where they went from, from guy to guy at various stages of beard growth, and they all were from different nations, every yeah. single one of them. And I want to give a, a free advertisement. This isn't sponsored by the Long War Journal, but I, I always encourage everybody, uh, they, they need to stop by and read the stuff that y'all put out because it's prescient. Y'all y'all have do not have short attention span. You're focused. And back in March, Y'all put out um, an article uh, from your staff mapping the emergence of the Islamic State in Afghanistan that really helped inform a comment I made to a few people when they announced that Mullah Omar uh, has assumed room temperature at some point in the last few years. 
and people thought it was a great thing. And I just kind of, you know, sucked my teeth for a second and said, I don't know whether it's a good thing. Because if the Taliban splinters a few years ago, we might have thought that would be a great thing to decapitate the Taliban. But, you know, we've already seen a splintering on some of their fighters who are aligning themselves, which what is arguably, because of its transnational nature, a much more dangerous entity in the Islamic State. I wonder if you, you might have an update or some additional observations on not so much al-Qaeda and Taliban in Afghanistan, but we also have the Islamic State. And is this power struggle inside the Taliban and this fracturing, uh, is this actually a net negative for uh, the West in the fact that now there is a, a place, an arguably stronger place, that those Islamic fundamentalists can reach out to? So first I'm, I'm going to state that I actually think Al-Qaeda's strategy um, is far more dangerous because it's more subversive. It's more, um, given the fact that it's more inclusive and more willing to work with those who may not be quite just like them, but they're good enough, uh, it gives them a lot of plausible deniability. Let me give you an example. In Syria, there's a group called al Sham. It is seated with senior al-Qaeda leaders. It's senior al-Qaeda leaders. It's basically a stalking horse for al-Qaeda. You have individuals in the West, policymakers, people at think tanks, even people in the government that say, yeah, we, we need to support Ahar al-Sham because it's moderate. It's quote-unquote moderate. It's, al- it's basically al-Qaeda, an al-Qaeda branch in Syria. But al-Qaeda is so it, – it, it, this is a very clever and effective – Islamic State's kind of easy because they're the crazies, and you can easily pick the crazies out, right, and say, oh, that's them. It's the ones who, who kind of convince individuals who aren't paying close enough attention that they could be allies. The Washington Post ran a, a news article from a, a spokesman for, for Ahar al-Sham saying – Oh, you know, we're not radicals, and you should be supporting us. They've written an op-ed like this. It's, it's absolutely absurd when we can prove the top leaders of Ahar al-Sham. Oh, and by the way, Ahar al-Sham issued condolences for Mullah Omar uh, for, for his death because they're part of the al-Qaeda sphere. And, um, so, you know, so again, my opinion is that, you know, the al-Qaeda threat, given how it's, it's adjusted its strategy – is far more dangerous than the Islamic State. Now, that being said, the Islamic State is far more appealing to those jihadist individuals who don't want to play nice with others, who like the fact that it's a very clear line, it's our way or the highway, right? That's that's a very appealing, you know, especially to to those who are just in this for the violence and for, you know, not just the violence. I mean, obviously, typically they're believers, but they're the believers who are, aren't willing to compromise, and they tend to be very dangerous. But again, very easy to pick out amongst the crowd. Um, you know, if to me, if it was just the Islamic, if we were just up against the Islamic State, this would be a far easier fight because they they really piss a lot of people off, and they really cause a lot of Muslims to say, oh, "Boy, I, I, you know." There's, there's just very little room for compromise with them. So, you know, as far as the fracturing, that would definitely play in the Islamic State's hand. And again, and, you know, based on what I've said, 
that means that it's probably better for the West, assuming we had a good strategy to fight this group. But we don't. We don't. We don't have a good strategy to fight the Islamic State's message or Al-Qaeda's message. And I think this is, should be more than evident than in Syria and in Iraq, where we've been launching an air campaign against the groups and propping up uh, the Iraqi government and the militias, which is a whole other topic, which I'd be happy to discuss to explain why this is a major mistake at this point. Um, but, you know, we're having very little impact. And in Afghanistan, we're just disengaging. It's going to be very, very difficult to launch airstrikes each, uh, alone against uh, the Islamic State or uh, the Taliban. But, you know, I, I think it's just Given that, you know, I, I don't see the Islamic State expanding all that greatly in Afghanistan because given that they have that our way or the highway mentality, it just doesn't work in the Pashtun culture in Afghanistan, Pakistan. They, they have, they're going to alienate the wrong tribal leaders and the Taliban and Al-Qaeda really know how to how to deal with those sensitivities where the – uh, Islamic State is going to ultimately make mistakes and step all over those. Now, does that mean that the, there's a so, you know, how does that translate into the threat against the U.S.? To me, again, they're all jihadists. We should all be, we should be worried about them whether they call themselves Al-Qaeda or the Islamic State. But I see the Taliban and its backers, Al-Qaeda, I see them maintaining control of the insurgency in Afghanistan over time. Because, look, despite what we, you know, and by the way, we don't know when Mullah Omar really died. The, the, the controversy on this is that people claim that the Afghan government claimed he died two years ago. And then there's some, some people that are uh, Taliban leaders who are basically opposed to the, the existing leadership or are claiming that. Taliban has said it was recent. Uh, it, it, the whole problem said that it's a, it's a way of discrediting the, the existing Taliban leadership. But throughout all of this, the, what the Taliban has been doing is just regaining control of strategic districts as well as remote districts in Helmand province and Kunduz and Saripul and Badistan province. And elsewhere in Afghanistan, they, they, they are on the offensive as the U.S. is withdrawing its support for the Afghan security forces, given the Taliban's momentum militarily, I can't see them breaking apart uh, politically. The U.S. has also killed several senior Islamic State leaders in airstrikes in eastern Afghanistan where they were massing. Um, I, you know, I, I think the Islamic State will be a thorn in the side for Afghanistan and, and I'm sorry, for the Taliban and for Al-Qaeda as well as Afghanistan. They'll probably continue to peel off disgruntled Taliban leaders or, or of jihadists of other stripes in, in the area. But I don't, I can't see them becoming as popular as they are in, uh, in, in Syria and in Iraq or in Nigeria, where they've really uh, taken off. But I think that's because of the, a lot of it is the tribal culture and the, and the deep links between the Taliban and Al Qaeda that have existed over, you know, for span for three decades plus. So I hope that answered your question. <laughs> Very complicated, Afghanistan, Pakistan. Always has been, always will be. You go on over to you. 
Yeah, I wanted to talk a little bit about the uh, the now renamed Islamic State West Africa, formerly Boko Haram, um, suicide bombers picking up there. Is is this just another one of those trend lines we're going to see that they, they started using young women to do a lot of these bombings? Yeah, we, this is something we've looked into recently, and I think the count is, I want to say, 35-plus female suicide bombers since June 2014. Clearly, they have a, an infrastructure. Uh, well, first of all, the ability to recruit or convince women to conduct such attacks, and then they're taking them, training them uh, to plot and execute the, these attacks uh, it's it's very worrisome, uh, and it's you know this to me is one of those in, clear indicators when you have women conducting suicide, you know, young women, old women, teenagers, children conducting a suicide attacks. It's extremely effective. It's difficult for security forces to deal with, and it also shows that the group is not just interested in, you know, conducting attacks from, you know, it's, it's exploring all of its options. It's radicalizing all elements of society in order to conduct attacks. And, you know, look, you, you, they're, they're obviously not one-off type attacks. It's clear, clearly they have a strategy. And when you see that type of organization within a group, you, you really have to pause and, and say, wow, they have, they have really, um, they've really ingrained themselves within a, a large segment or a, a significant segment of the Muslim population in Nigeria and surrounding countries. Yeah, I wonder how much they're going to use uh, some of the techniques the Islamic State of Iraq did where they would uh, take women and girls and, um, what's, a, what's a way to put this, uh, abuse their honor to the extent that they feel the only way that they can bring honor back to themselves, their soul, and their family is to make those attacks. If that's the route they're going, uh, yeah, it's uh, it's not going to go anywhere. It's going to be with us in spades. I wanted to, to, to flop you over to another continent, uh, being that I can't pronounce it the way the Chinese do. Um, and I think I'm, I, I brought up this book in one of our discussions before, but I always recommend to people if they, they keep asking, what is this Uyghur thing? And then, is this new radical? It's not. Uh, Hopkirk had a great book called Setting the East Ablaze. And part of what Hopkirk describes is the, appear, uh, the period immediately following the First World War, where he had a significant Uyghur uprising um, in, in China in conjunction with a, a few uh, things with the Red Army. A very interesting reading uh, points out the fact that the, the the radicalism and their feelings towards the Han Chinese goes back you know more than a hundred years ago, but there have been recent attacks in Western China, which has been doing a little bit of same thing they did in Tibet, uh, a little bit of Han Chinese uh, ethnic inflow to uh, affect the the balance of at least who's living there. But there was a, a incredibly brutal knife attack on a train station. They've also seen uh, a few car bombs here and there. And from Guantanamo to Afghanistan to Chechnya, you occasionally do see the, the Uyghurs are going international and getting their training. I know there's been a couple of them that have been uh, discovered by the Kurds that they've killed with the Islamic State. How, how much does China 
feel that they should get involved internationally with the Uyghurs, or are they going to just keep themselves content with uh, what the Uyghurs call East Turkestan? And uh, is there really much of a, of a critical mass uh, in East Turkestan that we might see there, what we are seeing in Nigeria that we just discussed? Yeah, the, so I liken the situation with the Uyghurs to that uh, and how the Chinese are viewed to be part of the problem, much like the Chechens and the Russians, right? So many in the West want to say, oh, the Uyghurs are just, you know, this is just a, you know, a rebel movement against the Chinese and they're oppressed, and no, it has nothing to do with Jihad. And there may be for a significant element of the, you know, Uyghur rebels, but there's also a very significant element that are indeed global jihadists. And we know because there's a group called the Eastern Turkestan Islamic Party, and it is based in northwestern Pakistan now because it's finding it difficult to operate in inside of Jiajing uh, province in, in China. But it, it's part of al-Qaeda's network. Its, its leaders typically sit on al-Qaeda's shura. The head, the head of the group at one time served as al-Qaeda's operations manager for, for northwestern Pakistan. Its fighters uh, it re- routinely releases videos of its training camps, which includes training for women and for children. They are, you know, again, this is a global jihadist group. They conduct attacks in Afghanistan, in Pakistan, and they have a very significant presence in Syria and, and a small, you know, as well, and this is a group again that's aligned with Al Qaeda, but you also have individual uh, leaders who will also fight for the Islamic State as well, and, and that's when those are the ones that are captured inside Iraq. The, the Uyghurs, we estimate, which uh, it's interesting to bring this up, we have a piece that we just really haven't been able to publish at the moment because uh, just because of all the, the information coming out on Mullah Omar's death succession and they just need for something like buried in a, in a news cycle. The Islamic State is actually making a, has made repeated calls for Uyghurs to join their ranks and clearly they're talking uh, about the the Uyghurs that are part of the, Turkish, the Eastern Turkestan Islamic Party that are fighting in Syria. And we estimate that group to have hundreds upon hundreds of fighter, fighters. At one point it released propaganda that 30 of its fighters were killed it was part of conducting suicide attacks in this major offensive. And, you know, look, if you want to say they only had 100 fighters in Syria and they lost 30, I mean, the groups basically rendered combat ineffective in a way. But they aren't. They're still fighting on several fronts inside of Syria. And, you know, based on looking at their videos and, you know, images that we're seeing, we, they have to have probably three to 500 fighters at the very least operating within Syria. There's numbers probably comparable in Afghanistan, Pakistan as well. The Chinese have really raised the stink about the, about the Eastern Turkestan Islamic Party uh, with the Pakistani government. I think it's a big reason that the Pakistani government ultimately launched its offensive in North Waziristan, and you know the Pakistani government claimed, well, we're going after all jihadists, but that's really not true. They didn't go after what they call the quote-unquote good Taliban. Those are the Taliban that the Pakistani government supports or likes because they want to page jihad in Afghanistan against the U.S. and against the West and then the Afghan government. 
and they don't attack, conduct attacks against the Pakistani state. So those were left out of this offensive. The groups that were targeted were groups like the movement in the Taliban in Pakistan. They're considered the bad Taliban because they, they fight the Pakistani state as well as the Eastern Turkestan Islamic Party and the Islamic movement of Uzbekistan, which there's a lot of crossover between the IMU and the, the Turkestan Islamic Party um, in where they conduct operations. And, you know, there's Uyghurs in both groups and whatnot. But um, they're, they're basically sister terrorist groups uh, in, in the theaters that they fight in and, and you know, how they're perceived by Al-Qaeda and, uh, and then the Taliban. So it, it's... I think that this, the longer that the Chinese suppress uh, or attempt to suppress the, the problem in in uh, in Western China, the more that groups like the Eastern Turkestan Party, Islamic Party, can you know it just widens the recruiting. That's that's the real dilemma in all of this, right? Gaddafi or Saddam Hussein, or leaders, oppressive leaders, tend to serve as some of the best recruiters. For Islamic groups, but then they also serve as sometimes the best uh, those to you know keep the boot down on these Islamic groups as well. Uh, so you know, in the case of when we removed Gaddafi, we removed a you know help remove him. You know, well, guess who was fighting up against them? It was you know jihadists. A lot of them were jihadist groups that had long fought Gaddafi, and so. It's the real dilemma in, all, in, in a lot of this this war is you know if you remove the what has kept these groups down, there's often nothing to stop them from just growing. I mean, they're not going to become you know pro-Western democratic uh, groups overnight just because they're not being oppressed. They're they believe in their ideology and they're going to continue to act upon it. That's what we've seen in Libya and in Tunisia and. Egypt and, you know, throughout any of the Syria and any of the countries affected by the Arab Spring, that, you know, when you remove those breaks on that, the things that kept the jihadist groups down, they, the jihadist groups uh, just only become stronger. And I think that's the kind of the situation that you're in, you're at with China. Not that I expect the Chinese government to be overthrown any, at any point in time, but let's say the Chinese did back off of, of the Uyghurs in in, in Judging province, then, well, you know, I don't expect the Turkestan Islamic Party to just melt away. In fact, I would expect its influence and reach to to only grow. I think the message would only grow because they they would be the ones saying we're the ones that were waging jihad against the infidel Chinese government, and you know, and look, you know, now that they're they've walked away, you know, we are the ones that are strong. Um, you know, the, but yet you know, again, the Chinese have been, you know, they've they the real pressure that they've exerted has been on the Pakistanis. They haven't really weighed in on Syria or any other places where the Uyghurs, you know, may have been popping up. There, Chinese aren't real concerned about what's happening in Afghanistan with the Turkestan Islamic Party because they really, I think, they recognize that the Afghan government is just too weak to do anything about it. Well, yeah, I'm going to whipsaw you back to Africa for a minute. The sure. In uh, in uh, East Africa, in Somalia, I, I for a while I thought the Al Shabaab guys had pretty much had a stake driven through them, but they seem to have come roaring back. Is this another one of those groups that's uh, participating in the fun and frolic in uh, Syria, and then sending people back home better trained and 
all fired up? Yeah, and you know, you made a great uh, analogy. I always say that, you know, these guys are vampires. Unless you drive a stake through the heart, chop off the head, and expose them to sunlight, you can never, ever count them out. That's why, you know, when someone's reported dead and they don't see a body or a confirmation from the group, I'm just, you know, say we got to wait and see. Uh, Shabab, as a group, it's uh, there's been an ebb and flow in the fighting for well over a decade. Remember, in 2006, Shabab controlled most of southern Syria and central Syria, and then the Ethiopians invaded and kicked them out of Mogadishu, and, you know, they, they Shabab sort of went, well, actually it was the Islamic Court Union, which is the predecessor of Shabab. The Shabab came back, took control of Mogadishu and vast areas, and then you had the African Union uh, mission in Somalia, which is basically uh, a group of uh, of uh, African countries, Uganda, Burundi, and, and others, they started an offensive, and then the Kenyans threw in with them. The Ethiopians got back involved, and now Shabab is on its back heels, and it's lost control of major cities and towns. But it's still an effective group, and it's conducting ambushes that are killing 50, 60, 70 uh, troops from these African Union countries. And we see them releasing videos, and then the countries deny it. And then the Shabab releases images that show ID cards and dead bodies and all the equipment they captured and whatnot. So they, they basically, they go back to conducting a guerrilla insurgency um, and then they take control of areas. It's kind of ebbs and flows, but Chabab is very effective at, at, the, at the, you know, the navigating the clan relationships, much like the Taliban is, is with navigating the uh, tribal relationships in Afghanistan. And that's why they can never be ruled out. You, you may think they're down and out, We've killed some of their top leaders, uh, including Gadani and airstrikes. But you know what? Gadani was in charge of Shabab since 2007. So you know what? His time was going to come sooner or later. You know, U.S. presidents only have an eight-year lifespan as far as commanding uh, their governments. And yet we seem to think when we kill a leader of an Islamist group who's been around for 20 or 30 years, that means the group is going to collapse. No, the group's had 20 or 30 years to prepare for his succession. So they have succession plans. They have the, you know, they're patient. I, you know, the reason why, you know, I ultimately I'd love the term the long war um, and use it for the long war journal, certainly nothing we invented. Um, but, you know, the Taliban have the, to me, the, the one saying that describes this entire fight. And they say that, you know, the West is coming from the Taliban, or at least it's subscribed to the Taliban. And they, they say, the West has all the clocks, and they, the Taliban, have all the time. And what they're saying is that while we have all the gadgets and we can conduct the airstrikes, we have the money and the tanks and, you know, all the fancy things, the Taliban has the time. They're, they're willing to, to wage this fight in the span of decades or even centuries. That's, that's their view of it. They are the ones that are going – they're not, you know, subject to election cycles and – you know, the, the whims of, of, of the people of countries, which can change very quickly. They have a, they have a strategy and they're going to stick to it and it's going to take time. And over the course of time, it's, there's going to be setbacks and then there's going to be victories. And that's, you know, to me, that's in the, you know, in a nutshell is what Shabbat has done. They've weathered the storm time and time again. They've replaced key leaders who've been lost. 
they've recovered from battlefield losses and adjusted their strategy and um and expanded their attacks into neighboring countries in, in order to attempt to get them to withdraw and now you have jihadist groups ri- arising in places like Kenya and Tanzania and you know and uh in, in Ethiopia and whatnot so that's um you know in a nutshell i think shabab it's a, it's a survivor group and, on, and as far as what is it's doing uh, you did ask about you know whether it's any fighters serious shabab typically has been involved in the, in the theaters in nigeria it sent support to boko haram and boko haram was in the al qaeda sphere i'm not sure where it, where it stands now it's uh trained fighters for the fight in mali and it's also worked very closely with al qaeda in the arabian peninsula there's been a lot of cross-pollinization between the two groups. Of course, Al-Qaeda and Arabian Peninsula is based out of Yemen. Yeah, that is uh, unquestionably, though, the one characteristic is they are definitely playing on a different timeline. I know General Odenerno said a few weeks ago that uh, he thinks uh, the Islamic State battle is going to be 10 to 20 years. I think he might be off by a zero based upon uh, what history has shown us when they go through these uh, waxing phases. But it's definitely something, Bill, I think that we're going to be uh, talking about quite a few more times. And uh, as as your dog is barking, announcing the fact that the hour has come to an end, first of all, <laughs> I, I wanted to thank you for, for taking time uh, this afternoon to, to spend with us and our listeners. And what are some of the things you're going to be uh, focusing on for the rest of the summer, either personally or what we could expect to see over at the Long War Journal? Well, we continue to track what's happening in, in Iraq and Syria. It's a major battlefield. We're definitely looking at the Taliban leadership succession and how Al-Qaeda plays into this. We kind of view what happened with the Taliban with the death of Mullah Omar as it was an opportunity for Al-Qaeda to really assert itself with the Taliban leadership. Um, we saw evidence of this last month. It's a, got a whole other show that we could do. Um, tracking the, the how the Shia groups are, the Shia jihadist group, not jihadist group, the Shia um, groups that are backed by the Iranian government. These are the militias uh, that have killed hundreds of American soldiers that are being supported by the U.S. now. It's, it's unconscionable. So those are probably the three really large issues that we're covering. And, of course, we're going to be looking at everything else that's going on in the in this long war. And, uh, Sal and Eagle One, real pleasure to speak with you guys as always. It's, it's one of the highlights of my year to, to do your guys' show. I really enjoy the hour. Well, thanks a lot, Bill. <laughs> and yeah, we really, really appreciate it. You're, you've always been a great guest and great information for everybody. And I appreciate everybody that's taken a, the opportunity to, to join us for another edition of MidRats. Please join us next week, the 9th of August, where our guest will be Acting Undersecretary of Defense for Personnel and Readiness, Brad Carson. And we'll follow it up on the 16th of August with Naval War College Professor Tom Nichols. Until then, hope everybody has a great Navy day. Cheers. Maloney wants to marry me and so Leave the strand and pick a billy Or you'll be to blame For love has fairly drove me silly Hoping you're the same It's a long way to Tipperary It's a long way
Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.